So one of the things that I really want our students to understand is there are two ways to approach Bible reading. One is with the question, is God good? And then the other is, if God is good, how is what I'm reading good? And to push them toward permission to read the scriptures from that second space, that that second space is the space that the believer comes at the question from. People outside of the church are going to come from the perspective of, is God good? When we know the entire story of the Bible, and when we look to a historic faith, we can say, yeah, God is good. Therefore, how is what I'm reading good? Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but light-hearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Well, welcome to this episode of the Apologetics Podcast. In this particular episode, we are going to be talking to Jen Wilkin about Bible literacy as apologetics, and we are really looking forward to this one, have been looking forward to it for a long time. But before we talk to Jen, what we need to do is what we always do, which is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. This time, we actually need to talk about one other thing about Indiana Jones, and it is an instance in which clearly some major Hollywood movie makers have been listening to our podcast, and they stole an idea from us. Clearly, there's, there's no other explanation. You see, there's a movie in the theaters called Dial of Destiny. By the way, it's a much better movie than the title. That's a terrible title, but The Dial of Destiny, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, and in it, it begins with the Lance of Longinus, which we have brought more than once, more than once. in different <laughs> forms. The Lance of Longinus, the one that supposedly pierced the side of Christ, that Lance, we've brought it into battle in this episode that we call what? Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. There is no other explanation, folks, except that they got that idea that they start Dial of Destiny with, and it ends up being, spoiler alert, a fake one. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Actually, I mean, probably we, won't. We, you know, we, could. we technically already <laughs> spoiled that we just in did, but nonetheless, one of our battles. Yes. So nonetheless, what we have here is clearly that they have been listening to this podcast, and they have used something from our podcast, and we have decided decided not to sue them because they're much bigger than we are. Right, so, right, hey. right. Yeah, no suing. But I feel like maybe we should send an email and like, hey, royalties of some sort would be nice. We're not greedy. A very extremely small percentage we'd accept. 
So, Garrick, what do you have today to bring into battle in this episode of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History? Okay. Absolutely feel like I'm cheating here, but... Wouldn't be the first we're, time. We're, but... No, stop that. <laughs> Felt like I may be scraping the bottom of the barrel of relatedness to church history, but I'll let the listeners be the judge. I am bringing a fascinating artifact to the table today, which everyone can see in public or you can see on the website because the pictures are amazing. And this would be the shield of Henry II of France. Henry II, who reigned from 1547 to 1559, this shield is on display at the Met, Fifth Avenue Met Museum. Let me read just a couple of things, right? This shield, again, the high-resolution pictures that you can go look at this, we'll put a, a link in the show notes, is amazing. It's a shield that has this amazing battle scene on it. And the battle scene is thought to depict the victory of Hannibal and the Carthaginians over the Romans back in the 3rd century, which perhaps could be interpreted. Why would Henry have that on his shield? It could be an allusion to the struggle that the French had against the Holy Roman Empire during his reign in the 16th century. Interesting, very interesting fact is that on the shield, and you can see this in the pictures, in the borders of the shield that they call the strap work, which is something I didn't know, are these intertwined letters. And you can see that there's an H, for Henry, obviously, that there's a C for Catherine de Medici, his Italian queen wife, and possibly, possibly there's also the letter D in there for Diane de Poitiers, I'm French was never my thing, who was his mistress. And how does this relate to church history? I could go way into it, but basically a lot of things happening post-Reformation era, as the Protestants and Roman Catholics continued to vie for power and influence throughout Europe, Henry II was a big part of that. And one final fun fact, in July of 1559, here's how Henry died. <laughs> he, I don't know why I would laugh. He was wounded in the eye during a jousting tournament. I'm assuming that means he caught a jousting Lance to the eye, and this tournament was celebrating his daughter's marriage to Philip II of Spain, and he died from those injuries in 1559. So that's a tough way to go. Should have had a shield. I guess it didn't help him then. So the lesson you learn is if you're the father of the bride, don't celebrate with a jousting tournament. Folks, we're saving people's lives here. Yeah, Church history yeah. saves lives. Do not, as part of it, just do a dance. It's dance just do contest. a dance. It, it's, it's a dance. It's fine just to do the dance. You don't have to joust too. And so we learned that from Henry II. Well, I also actually have something from the 16th <gasps> century. We so we're actually this. overlapping time periods here. And so it is the cat of Philip Neri, the cat of Philip Neri. See, there was this 16th century Italian Roman Catholic priest who founded the confraternity of the most holy trinity of pilgrims and convalescents, and his name was Philip, Philip Neri. And he was known widely for telling jokes. He was big on telling jokes, enjoyed telling jokes, and when he said, a joyful heart is more easily made perfect than a downcast one. But not only did he tell jokes, but he also had a pet cat who lived in 
in his apartment at the Church of St. Jerome in Rome. And so this cat lived with him in his apartment there in the church. And in 1583, the Pope ordered him to move from there to a monastery. And he was somewhat heartbroken, but he left his cat behind in his cell. He left this cat that he apparently deeply enjoyed in his cell, and he said it was an example of self-denial to his followers. Now, I think he just was tired of cleaning the litter box. That's what I think. (laughs) I think he just didn't want to clean the litter box anymore. So he said, I am denying myself and leaving this cat behind in the church when I moved to the monastery. He died in 1595. It wasn't anything as momentous as a jousting tournament. But when his body was examined, he had two broken ribs that had been caused by the expansion of his heart, which they thought this had happened when he was praying in the catacombs. I'll just leave that right there. <laughs> catacombs. Okay, thank you but it was that. later concluded that this was merely due to a medical issue. It wasn't due to anything miraculous expanding of the heart when he was praying, but it was due to a medical issue. And so his cat, Philip Neri's cat, one of the famous pets of church history right up there with Martin Luther's dog, the Belfer line and all of that. So we have Philip Neri's cat. So Philip Neri's cat is going into battle against a shield. Now, I like cats. We own a cat. I also know where cats come from and I know where they're going to. <laughs> and so when you are going into battle against a cat, you're not merely going into battle against a small mammal. You are going into battle against and something that has a deal with Satan somewhere, somewhere going on. Every cat has some sort of a deal with Satan going on. So I don't know how a shield can triumph against Old Scratch himself. I don't know. I mean, cats are terrifying creatures, that's for sure. Listen, if his friends didn't call him Nary the Mary, that was a huge miss. <laughs> yes, it was. Huge Mary miss. Nary. <laughs> Or nary a cat would I go up against. Uh, Okay, I'll stop. Listen, that's fair. I do think all it takes is one good shot, one good hard deflection from the shield to at least cause a draw, to make the cat rethink this whole thing. Like, hey, maybe I don't want to get into this right now. But, man, cats, those are unpredictable animals. I'm so excited today. We have with us Jen Wilkin. She is the executive director of Care, Families, and Next Gen Ministries at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. She's married to Jeff. They have four children and three grandchildren. And she is the author of many, many books, including Women of the Word, and most recently has co-authored a work with our friend J.T. English, You Are a Theologian. Thank you so much for being with us today, Oh, thanks so much for having me on. Jen, welcome, friend. It's a long time no see. <laughs> I have a super important question. It may be the most important question that we ask you today. It's the first question that we ask all of our friends who come join us, and that is, I know you're a huge rock and roll fan, always blaring it from the office, especially now that you have office mates. So if you could be a member of any rock band in the history of rock and roll. What band would that be? And which instrument would you play? Vocals counts as instrument, obviously. Well, can I just want to be a member of the band because I wanted to hang out with greatness? Or do I have to actually bring greatness? No, 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 no. All of us are going to answer because of the 
the greatness we want to be okay, around. Okay, I'm just going to take a social risk here because my answer is queen, and sometimes you can't say that in certain settings, but I'm just going to trust that everybody can hear that the way they need to. I think Freddie Mercury was an absolute genius, and the fact that he and Brian May ended up in the same rock band is amazing to me. And so I would have to play the xylophone because that's about the only instrumental skill I could bring to the table, but I would be willing because I do play the piano badly, but I think Freddie had me beat on the keys. <laughs> but I've heard you sing. Like, you would you would make an excellent backup vocalist. Uh, well, I like to, to think so. so yes. that's a, it's actually a secret that I can sing, Garrick, so way, oh, to, sorry. way to out me there. I didn't know that, and yeah. I never heard that was a secret. It all began with the three wise men Followed his star to them to Bethlehem Made it hurt through Avaland Born was a leader of men That's where all to choose between them and Boston. And my husband and I have an ongoing disagreement about the value of extended guitar solos in 70s and 80s rock music. He believes that there is no such thing as a guitar solo that is too long. And I believe that that is only true in the case of the bands Boston and Queen. Okay, that's fair. I take a mediating position in which I'm perfectly fine with extended solos at live concerts, right? Like you go for it then. I don't exactly want to hear it in your album version as I'm cruising down the road. That's kind of, that's my take. I want to hear as many guitar solos as possible <laughs> all the time. True. My argument that's is true. that Selah in the Psalms, when they say Selah, that's a guitar, that's a guitar solo. solo. That's what Selah yeah. means. Or a actually. xylophone solo. So, uh, we don't know. It could have, could have been I mean, a xylophone. Like, that's yeah. true. True. We have increased greatly our musical literacy in this time, but our focus today is not musical literacy, as wonderful as that is. Our focus today is biblical literacy and apologetics. And I want to ask one question, just a very basic one, just to begin with. Jen, what do you even mean when you talk about biblical literacy? You talk about that a lot, but what is it that you really would define as biblical literacy? Well, and I'm enough of a word lover to even push the term a little bit closer and call it Bible literacy, not biblical literacy. And the reason I will use that term is because biblical literacy can sometimes lead people to think that what we're after is knowledge about the Bible. And Bible literacy presses the learner to recognize, oh, no, it's knowledge of the Bible, like being able to just pass a simple pop quiz. So a really easy working definition for Bible literacy is having possession of a copy copy of the Bible in a language that you understand and growing in your knowledge of that book and your ability to understand it. So, you know, we live in a day and age where we all 
have access to the Bible in our own language, meaning, you know, those of us in our context. And we also actually have basic literacy skills that were given to us, hopefully through whatever education system we came up through. But many of us have not learned that there is a connection between general literacy skills and Bible literacy and that we should be interacting with the Bible, at the very least, as a book. Obviously, it's much more than just a book, but it is at least a book. So Bible literacy is attempting to take general literacy practices and apply them to the most important book of all. Mm. Jen, you talk to countless folks about Bible literacy. I know that there are multiple points of why, like why this is a thing that we need to be leaning into as the church and you as believers, why this is an integral part of your growth as disciples of Jesus. Specifically, kind of for our conversation today, how does Bible literacy help people in their faith in today's context, in kind of this growing secular existence that we're in? Yeah, I would say that in the day and age that I was growing up in the church, there was just a general assumption that your neighbor was going to think and believe similarly to the way that you did. And so understanding of the Bible was, at least in my experience, it was derivative for most of us. We received passive information from sermons or, uh, and then, you know, with the rise of the internet, then that proliferated and there were all kinds of ways to passively receive understanding of our sacred text. But in many cases, we ourselves did not have firsthand knowledge of the text, which means that, and I'll even see this in my current context, you can have people who can explain a doctrine to you, but if you press them on where you see it in the scriptures, they may be able to proof text something, but to understand how it fits in the flow of the story of the Bible as a whole, they might stumble around that. And so what we find as we enter into a secularized age is that though we have views around what the Bible says, they often crumble at the simplest challenges because we have adopted someone else's understanding or we have repeated someone else's understanding. We know it's in there, but we don't know where. And then when we're pressed on it, we begin to wonder, wait, is it in there? And why don't I know where it is? Do I even believe these things? So I do think that as we see increasing pressure on why do you believe what you believe, which I think is incredibly healthy for the church to go through. We will see two things. You'll see people who give up at the first sign of difficulty, and then you'll see people who double down and say, wait a minute, this is a historic faith, and it's upheld previous generations, so there must be more to this that I can look into. As we think about Bible literacy and apologetics, I want us to think through the history of apologetics after the Reformation, let's just say after the 16th century. There emerges with the dawn of modernity, there emerges this idea, this doubt, we might say, about the miracles. And so apologetics was all about defending the miracles of Christianity. You get into the 19th and the 20th centuries, and what you begin to see there is it's not just defending the miracles, that's still there. But it's also defending the metaphysics. That is a Christian way of thinking. But what I've observed toward the end of the 20th century, and especially now, the early years of the 21st century, 
is that apologetics is not just about the miracles or the metaphysics. It's about the morals and it's about the hermeneutics. And what I mean by that is what we have to argue for, what we have to demonstrate is that Christianity is good and to help people actually read the Bible correctly. In other words, a lot of the misunderstandings or the doubts about Christianity are centered in one of two places. Either I don't think Christianity is good, I don't think the morals of Christianity are good, or on the other hand, I don't believe what the Bible has to say, but often that's based on a misunderstanding of what the Bible actually says. And so apologetics is about hermeneutics, is about interpreting the Bible rightly. And so as we think about that, what I want to ask and and for you to explore, if you could, what do you see as some of the key misunderstandings of the Bible that cause people to doubt their faith right now? That is to say, not things that are legitimate problems with Christianity, perhaps, but rather are misunderstandings where they don't understand what the Bible is really saying, or their Bible literacy is so shallow that they end up doubting their faith, not because there's really anything to doubt, but rather because they don't understand the Bible. They don't have the Bible literacy they need. Are there any key areas you see that happening in? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean— how much time do we have, right? I think that the two the two elements that I have begun to press on with increasing urgency that are influence, I think influencing, I think, the way that we not just that we understand the Bible, but that we understand our faith and the world are individualism and instant gratification. And I have started taking to calling them the two eyes that we need to gouge out in good Baptist alliterative form. So when it comes to the instant gratification piece, I think one of the biggest issues, and I'm sure you see this in education spaces as well, is that we want understanding, but we want soundbite understanding, and we want understanding in the short term. We don't want to really wrestle through something over the long term that's going to have a lasting impact on the way that we have understanding built. And so I think one of the biggest challenges that we're up against in the conversation around hermeneutics, Bible literacy, understanding of doctrine, is that we as a culture lack steadfastness in our understanding of um, the learning process. And so we have easy access to information that we believe is a substitute for formation. And therefore, when we find out that it takes more work than we thought it did, we begin to lose interest or look for more shortcuts. The reality is there's nothing that we've ever learned, whether that's a skill or an idea that was of lasting value that didn't require effort and investment on our part. And even that term apologist, I thought about it, you know, before we got into the podcast today, I was thinking about the things that I'm an apologist for. And they're not all related to my beliefs. I mean, there are things that in in my everyday life that I, you know, sometimes we call them hobby horses because we just can't control the impulse to talk about them or we, we pretend like we can't. So what are the things that I rant on? Those are the things I'm an apologist for. Why do I care about those things? I care about those things because there was some hard, long learning associated with them. So I think that as it relates to where we find ourselves in the church today, we generally 
avoid hard, long learnings unless we, for whatever reason, have a clear understanding of the reward up front. So kind of a classic example that I like to give is the people in our churches are willing to commit to CrossFit and Whole30 and all kinds of things that require a lot of discipline. Discipline is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. And so I think a lot of the issue around Bible literacy and apologetics is that we as church leaders, have not given a compelling vision for why it matters. So that would be, so instant gratification would be the first one, that we want it to be easy and quick and our growth of our understanding. And then individualism is just simply that we understand Bible literacy or the growth of our faith to be only about self-actualization. So even, you know, what you were talking about, Dr. Jones, with regard to the morals of the Bible, morals only make sense in community. Morality is meant to help us live in community with one another. And so when I begin to look at Christianity, either as an outsider or an insider from an individualistic mindset, then the value of a system of morals just becomes completely incongruous because who cares whether I behave better? And I would argue that we actually have shot ourselves in the foot with the way that we have talked about grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cheap grace example, for too long, I think the church has said, hey, it's a free gift and just take it and it's all easy from there. Morality is, is not easy. Moralism is terrible. We don't want moralism, but morality is necessary for us to be able to fulfill the great commandment. So you get back into the instant gratification conversation as well. Nobody wants to work hard for things that they don't perceive the reward of. And because we don't have a shared understanding within the church or without the church of what's for the common good, then the Christian worldview can fall on deaf ears for the outsider and can feel like it's insupportable for the insider. What do you say to folks who are leaning in and they want to do the the long, difficult, deep work of moving towards biblical wisdom through Bible literacy. What does that journey look like? And what's the relationship between Bible literacy and biblical wisdom? Yeah, well, one hopes that Bible literacy yields biblical wisdom in the heart over a period of time through the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, we do believe that the Scriptures are living and active. We believe that the Spirit is doing a transformative work through them in the heart of the genuine believer. And so I always say, if you want a watertight promise to name and claim, you should go to James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally without finding fault. We should be asking that the Lord would grant us wisdom as a result of our interactions with the Scriptures. But again, I think where we miss the mark sometimes on this is that we have been so catechized into a quiet time mentality that we actually think our most formative interactions with the Scripture will be times alone. Time alone in the scriptures is important, but it is a starting point and not a terminus. And so when we think about developing a wise view of the world that is characterized by godly wisdom, it does not happen in a vacuum. It happens in community, that the Spirit does that work of instruction, not just through alone time. And I would argue more often than not in, in dialogue with other believers and under good teaching that is appealing to a base level understanding that we have worked toward on our own and in those conversations with others. Yeah. You oversee in, in your 
role, you oversee a few departments, and one of those is NextGen, which includes our student ministry. And I'm wondering what kind of discussions you're having with the student ministry staff that you oversee about forming Bible literacy in middle school and high school students. Just wondering if in those discussions, if y'all have seen that the processes, the strategies, the challenges, are they all that different? Or is it the same discussion, just different scope and sequence? Like what are, what are those conversations look like? Yeah, well, so I'm at a little bit of an advantage. No, I'm at a huge advantage being in the space that I'm in because by the time our students get to middle school and high school, they have had a good foundation of literacy tools laid for them in the earlier years at the church. So, you know, we teach elementary students the attributes of God. We're teaching the 40 major events of of Scripture. You know, Garrick, you can walk into that space and the timeline is on the wall and it's actually on the wall in every classroom. And so we're trying to give them both macro and micro skills that are going to help them for a lifelong devotion to knowing the Scriptures and knowing, obviously, the God of the Bible as a result. So by the time our students get to middle school and high school, we can build on that that foundation, we can keep saying, what are you seeing is true about God when you're reading through a particular passage? Where does this fall into the bigger story? We've trained them skills of how to actually just have a physical Bible and look up passages. We've talked to them about reading in context. So that's a gift. But I will say that in general, when thinking about student ministry, what I see is a temptation to shift entirely toward relational ministry. Now, I do think it is a critical phase in their life in the church where relational ministry is essential. Parents are looking for a third party who can triangulate a message at a point when their voice may be diminishing in the life of their child. And so we recognize that and we're going to major in that. But I do think that we can tend to reach middle school and high school and start giving them only devotional or quiet time approaches to scripture. Some of that is because we think, well, gosh, they've got all these other things pulling on their time. And so let's make this as easy as we can. Let's lower the bar as much as possible and say, hey, all we're asking you to do is these four things each morning when you get up. And I think what we can lose sight of is that when we do that, we're actually making a value statement about the relative importance of their spiritual life and their sports team or their musical instrument or the foreign language that they're learning. They are right at the point that they begin to enter into serious academic study and extracurricular pursuits that are going to require a great deal of their time, money, and focus. I think it's the wrong message for the church to say, we're going to dumb down the spiritual aspect for you. We value things we commit time and money and effort to. So obviously we don't need to charge them $45 to come to student night every Wednesday night, but we should be thinking about how are we articulating the value of what we're doing by raising the bar for our students. And in our case, we don't do that across the board. We have opportunities for students who we see are leaning toward more or deeper, and we try to pull them in. But we always do have in view that sort of average attendee. How are we also calling them to something that is worth the pursuit? So you have an opportunity as a next-gen director of seeing people in a multiplicity of different life stages. And so I'm wondering, in your observation, have people's doubts changed about the Christian faith over the past 
decade or so? In other words, are the things that people are doubting right now different than they were 10 or 20 years ago? And if so, what are the doubts that you see emerging as you look at the rising generation and young adults right now? What do you see as the rising doubts that people are having? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret to anyone listening that the sex and sexuality conversation is the issue of the moment. And for students, it is top of mind. And I think what they are asked. So I I would say there are things about what our students are experiencing that are normal to all times. You know, there's no such thing as a new sin. There are old expressions of the same temptations, right? And children of every age have seen adolescence as a time to try on new identities, to experiment with identities. And so that looked a particular way when I was in high school or middle school, looked a particular way when Garrick was in middle school, high school, and it looks a particular way now. It can feel like the stakes are particularly high with the way that it is looking right now. Although I would just point out that not only has middle school and high school been a time of identity exploration, it has almost always, well, I would say always been a time of sexual exploration as well. So it's important for parents to exhale a little and say, there's nothing new under the sun. Even though this iteration of it looks to me like the scariest thing that's ever happened, God is still seated on his throne. So there are good solutions for current expressions of old temptations. So that being said, I do think that students are asking, does the faith of my parents Does it have the shock absorbers for this moment? Or will fear rule the day? And when they hear articulations of their parents' beliefs, their question will be, how does this make Christians loving? And how does this make God good? And so one of the things that I really want our students to understand is there are two ways to approach Bible reading. One is with the question, is God good? And then the other is, if God is good, how is what I'm reading good? And to push them toward permission to read the scriptures from that second space, that that second space is the space that the believer comes at the question from. People outside of the church are going to come from the perspective of, is God good? When we know the entire story of the Bible, and when we look to a historic faith, we can say, yeah, God is good. Therefore, how is what I'm reading good? And so training them into that kind of a framework. What I find among parents is they want their kids to have good answers to the questions they will get from their peers. And I actually don't think that that's necessarily what our children need. I think our children need to know how to be good neighbors to their peers who have different answers to fundamental questions and that they don't have to carry the weight of being an apologist. They should be learning to be an apologist at that stage, but that they don't have to carry the weight of convincing a friend. They need to carry the weight of demonstrating to a friend that they can love them even through deep differences. When you talk about not carrying the weight of having to convince, it does seem that there's a drastic difference between growing in your ability and preparation to answer questions that are asked of you. Well, and bringing them into the, again, pushing back on individualism and toward a communal understanding, they get that soul-sucking question, right? And they think, I have just been presented with a question about the Christian faith that no one else has ever thought of before. And then individualism tells them that it's just me and there's nowhere I can go for an answer. And so I know what a comfort it was to me to hear. And what we have always said to our kids is, hey, you're not going to come up with a new question. In fact, 
try, try to, and come to me when you have that question and let's talk about it because we have a wealth of experience and understanding that we can turn to. So when you get that sinking feeling and you just feel like you're going to be sick because this is the deal breaker, talk to someone about it. Don't just sit with it because there's no new questions. Yeah. One of the things that I found several years ago, I wrote a book in response to Bart Ehrman's book, Misquoting Jesus. So this wrote this book, Misquoting Truth. And for years, so two to three years after I first wrote that book, I received emails that were the same refrain over and over and over. They said that I wish I had had this book at this particular time because I was confronted with all these questions and nobody had given me any answers. They really did feel like, you could tell these students that had faced what Bart Ehrman had to say and then read the book that I had done, and some of them had already walked away from their faith, but they actually were saying, I felt like I was the only one that ever had these doubts. And that sense of isolation, that is something that is just something that is a death for the faith, it seems like, in people's mind. We know it's not. We look at it. We know it's not. But it feels when that student is in the moment, it feels like that this is the end of my faith because I can't come up with an answer to this one question. And the the main sort of sentiment that all these different emails I got had was a sense of betrayal, that all these problems were there in the biblical text and nobody ever told me about them. And they had this sense of betrayal. And with that sense of betrayal was a sense of isolation. And many of them struggled with, and some of them had even walked away from their faith. So I think it's so important, precisely what you said, to let our students know there are no new questions (laughs) that are going to be presented. People have wrestled with these questions before. You are not the first or only person to deal with this question, and it's okay. Raise your question, bring up your question, and maybe I'll even bring up some extra questions that you didn't think of so that you understand that other people have wrestled with this before. And that is actually one of the most faith affirming things to introduce them to the doubts that other people have wrestled with. We sometimes think that somehow that's going to hurt their faith if we tell them about the doubts or the problems. But really, to address those and to help them understand they're not the only person to feel this way, that is one of the most faith affirming things we can declare and do and say. Absolutely. Yeah, which requires parents to not fear things like doubt and hard questions and to feel comfortable being able to say, you know what, I don't know the answer to your question. Let's go find someone who's answered that. And that takes courage. It takes humility. But our children will be blessed by it. Moving from young people to women. Jen, you being the guru of women ministry, I know that's part of your job title. Just kidding. It's an inside joke for a lot of y'all out there. Are the women that you get to minister to and and walk alongside and, and work with, are they asking different questions, different questions of apologetics, different questions of hermeneutics than men are? And if so, what are some of the differences that you've seen over the years? Well, obviously there's a lot of overlap. I wouldn't say that they are uniquely asking different questions, but there are some different questions that emerge. Some of them are because of the way that women have been resourced 
predominantly over the last 30 or 40 years. When I started in women's spaces, you know, in the late 90s and into the early 2000s, the resources that were being channeled into female environments were almost entirely based at the emotional level and were almost entirely devotional or application driven. I say almost entirely because you did have people like Precept and BSF who were out there doing more of literacy approaches. But if you looked at the attendance in a Precept study versus whatever the topical study du jour was, you saw that women were gravitating toward the emotional appeal. And so I think when it comes to the question of apologetics, the idea that the emotion even stirred by asking the apologetics question can feel like a negative emotion. The, the feeling of doubt means that there will just be a general avoidance a lot of times of addressing anything related to apologetics. Or because apologetics is typically a discussion at the thought level before it goes to the feelings level, women can feel like they don't have the skills that they need to think critically. It's not that women don't know how to think critically. We obviously do. It's that we have not been encouraged to think critically in spaces surrounding our theology. And so we just feel like we're supposed to check our brains at the door when we walk in the church, and then we're supposed to share how we feel about something, but not how we think about something. Then how we think about something actually is going to, in some spaces, give us a negative social connotation, whether that's with men or with women, but also that it may not yield that immediate dose of affirmation or comfort that I have come to expect from interacting with spiritual topics. So there's that piece. And then I think the other piece would just be that women can wonder, this is personal for me, women can wonder if the Bible really does value women. They can wonder if God really does love female image bearers to the same degree that He loves male image bearers. I think particularly in conservative theological circles, which has been the space that I have been in for the last 20 years, because there is such a concern for preserving difference between men and women. The idea of shared value and mission and calling has been perhaps under-articulated. And I think that when women encounter what they perceive to be scary portions of the Bible, like let's say they've innocently embarked on a Bible reading plan and they start reading about the test for adultery and drinking ashes, and if she dies, then she was guilty, and they think, why would God ever treat a woman in this way? And they don't have answers. Paired with the fact that our reality is that most commentators are male, and so because we have different embodied experiences of life, I do find, generally speaking, that male commentators are less interested in exploring to the fullest some of those difficult passages because they don't hit them the same way that they hit a female listener. So I would say we have the issue of women who have not been trained into critical thinking as it relates to their faith, and then also probably a dearth of resources that are committed to exploring issues that would be top of mind for women in the realm of commentaries. Well, taking a step beyond that, one of the things that I've recognized is just that there's a lack of female apologists. I mean, we could make a list and it's a very, very short list. I recently recognized that I'm editing a book that I wanted a female contributor to this apologetics book. 
And it was a list of about five. That's all I could come up with that even could potentially contribute to this particular book. And that shouldn't be that way. There should be women who are deeply involved in apologetics. What do we need to do to help women become theologians and apologists so that they can be speaking into these issues? Yeah, it's the million-dollar question. And on the one hand, it's very simple to answer. If we know how we do it for men, then we know how we do it for women. We're both human beings, and we have the same you know, faculties, the same ability to learn the concepts and to articulate them. And so then we have to ask the question of why then do we have an underserved population? And I think that the answers are not too hard to find. I think that particularly in conservative theological circles, because women are not going to hold the office of pastor, there can be a lack of vision around the spiritual development pathway for a woman that we would intuitively have for a man. So one of the ways that I try to press those who are in position to impact this conversation is to say, if a young man came to your office door and said, hey, I want to be mentored, I want to understand how to be an apologist or how to grow in my understanding of the scriptures, you would intuitively know immediately how to resource him. But if a young woman came and said the same thing, all of a sudden it becomes complex. But the reality is that most of the spaces where that kind of formation would take place would not raise a single eyebrow. But I would also press on the idea that eyebrows should be raised because we have been governed, I think, more by a spirit of fear than a spirit of love when it comes to this topic. And I believe that the critical piece that we're missing in our collective understanding is the church is the family of God. And unfortunately, what has been the end result is that many theologically conservative churches function as single-parent homes with authoritarian fathers and children who learn from fathers and absentee mothers. And so you think about what would happen in a nuclear family if that were the makeup of a nuclear family and you had an absentee mother or a mother who was voiceless, you would look at that and say, that's not good. That's not healthy. But how does the mother find her voice? She finds her voice when the father says, this is someone who is important to the health and well-being of the family. I think another thing that we can sometimes overlook, you know, you ask the question, why are women so prone to be resourced at the emotions level? Why have they gravitated toward these things? And I would argue that when you have a motherless church, the women in the local church don't stop looking to be mothered. They simply look outside of the walls of the local church. And so voices like mine or other leaders who are doing parachurch work become louder in the ears of the women in the local church because they don't see someone to look to. So a big piece of correcting this issue is that a typically male population who has good access to the skill set and the resources necessary looks to their sisters and says, I want to invite you into this and I'm going to understand the importance of the family of God. I don't want a motherless church. And so even though there may be some risk associated with that, I believe that the risk of not partnering in the Great Commission is greater than the risk of someone thinking that I have crossed some line that is inappropriate. Hmm. It feels important for me to say to the audience, because of Jen's commitment years ago to stick around and fight for that type of culture here at the village. I've experienced the church as a family of God in this particular context, this place, in a way that I just never had before. Yeah, this church 
not perfect, so many flaws, all that stuff. But we really run hard after that ideal and we fight hard for that culture and that relationship between brothers and sisters, spiritual mothers and fathers in the staff room, from the pulpit. It's a big topic of conversation. And so I've told Jen that I'm grateful for her and leading that charge and so much so that she doesn't have to be, she's not the only person fighting it anymore, which is, which is great. Which is much better. (laughs) Which is much better. But I think that we're a church that's made some headway in this area. And I personally get to be a part of a space that is a mixed gendered theological training space where I get to witness this firsthand. And it's truly a remarkable and beautiful and moving thing to be a part of. So I wish it to be the case of more churches. Jen, what what are you working on right now? I'm working on a Bible study on Revelation for Lifeway Women, and I am eager to get it out there, but it's a daunting challenge. You know, Garrick, we did a sermon series on Revelation at the Village if a few years back, and I was a part of the sermon planning team. And it was the first time that I thought, oh, I think I'm probably ready to try to talk about this. And I've already written studies on Genesis and Exodus. And so having brought a population of women through those two critical books, you know, for understanding Revelation, it was a pretty easy jump to say, yeah, it's probably time to do this. I did go ahead and let our pastor stick his neck out there on saying his position, eschatological position, just to kind of test the waters and see where we were. And he seemed to navigate it pretty well. So we'll see if I can do the same. For me, since my focus is Bible literacy uh, with a heavy focus on genre and context as underutilized tools, I've jokingly said, although I'm serious, that I want to take these women away from a left-behind reading to a look-behind reading and to ask them to connect to these ideas that would have been immediately familiar to the original audience who heard the book read aloud and understood it. So it'll be more of an act of reclamation than of peering into the future to give them a literate reading of the book of Revelation. A warning to you, Jen. Timothy wrote a book a long time ago that was a multiple views of the end times, right? And he just gave the positions, right? He didn't land on a position. I worked for Timothy at the seminary for, I can't even remember how many years, but I got to see his mail. (laughs) And the mail that he still receives like a decade later, because he wrote a book on the end times is pretty wild. So prepare thyself, <laughs> Jen Wilkin, prepare thyself because it's going to yes. get, it's going to get wild, M- more wild than it already is. So you will get things in which people send you handwritten letters that have newspaper clippings in them and charts and newspaper clippings, all sorts of things. It is insane the things that you will receive when you write a book on the end of time. Are you sorry you wrote it? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sorry I wrote it. (laughs) I'm not exactly sorry I wrote it, but I will admit I did not expect all the things I received in response. Oh my goodness. So funny. Not sorry you wrote it, but there won't be a sequel.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast.